0: Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Calloway. I serve as the student and education pastor here at Unity. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer finishes his series on what matters to God. Today we look at the Seventh Church, Laodicea, it's found in Revelation. Stay with us to the end. Find out how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church.
1: Revelation in chapter 3 Revelation it's been a little bit since we've been to Revelation we're coming to the conclusion of our study of the seven churches of Revelation As you know there's the whole point in studying these seven churches is to discover one singular thing what does God want from this church Because in the grand scheme of things what I think is great in the church doesn't really matter It's not my church Church isn't just to follow the pastor's vision. The pastor's job is to discern the vision of Christ, which is found in his word. And when it comes down to it, a church isn't even just about trying to please the individual people in the pew. The goal is for us together, you and me together, working together to figure out what does Jesus want? What is the kind of church that Jesus wants to bless? And that's the kind of church that we wanna be a part of. We don't just wanna be part of a religious institution. We don't just wanna be entertained. But we want to be part of something that has a legacy, an eternal, lasting value, and that's only found in making sure that the church uh, matches and models what Jesus wants, and that's found in these seven churches as Jesus gives these report cards to each one of these churches, showing where they did well and where they did poorly, and he wants us to learn from that. And so this morning, we're gonna look at the last of the churches Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 beginning in verse 14 we're going to look number 1 at the Lord of Laodicea if you remember each one of these seven churches Jesus presents himself as as a different way to the churches depending upon what their spiritual need is and so this morning, in verse 14, he presents himself this way. And to the angel of the church at Laodicea, right. Again, angel, angelos means a messenger. It's those who are speaking the message of God to his people. He's talking about the church leadership, the pastor. You've got to start with a leader. If your pastor is unhealthy, your church is going to be unhealthy. And so God starts there. But that message, make no mistake, is to each one of us here. To the angel of the church of Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, some things about Laodicea you need to know. Laodicea was part of sort of a three city triad that were close together, did a lot together. Think uh, Ashland, Russell, Huntington, you know, we're, we're close together. And so, Laodicea was really close to a couple other major cities uh, Hierapolis and Colossae. And that's going to be important later on. Uh, Laodicea also prospered greatly under the Pax Romana. You remember that thing you studied in history and tried hard to forget? Uh, The Peace of Rome. They prospered greatly and trade routes and roads were built. And two of the major roads intersected in Laodicea. And so they were a center of great commercial banking and influence in the world. They were known for their industry. They produced black wool that was made into these really fancy carpets that everybody wanted. They had very fancy uh, designer black wool clothing, and so we have snappy dressers in Laodicea. In addition to that, They were also highly advanced in terms of medicine and things. In fact, in the nearby temple to Menkaru, they had people who'd come in, they had this eye salve. I don't know what it did, but evidently it made people see more clearly and they were world renowned. People would come into Laodicea for those things. Also, the city itself was built up on a large acropolis, several hundred feet high, which is what you did back then when you built a city. You wanted to be well defended, you wanted to be safe. And so when you look at Laodicea, they had everything going for them. They were protected on this, this, this large mountain, if you will. They were prosperous. They had lots of money, lots of trade coming through. They were highly advanced medically speaking. There was just everything going well for them. They were a wealthy people. They had everything that they wanted. And that was part of the problem. They had everything that they wanted. You say, well, I would to God that I could live such a life. Uh, but that's how they were. <clears throat> but Jesus presents himself to this church not appealing to his vision in Revelation 1 of the glorified Christ, as he often does, but instead, he's going to address them by using three titles for himself. The first is, Amen. He says, I am the Amen. Now, this is, Amen is just a transliteration of this Hebrew word that means certainty or truth. We close our prayers with amen, meaning this is, this is true, or let it be done, uh, because this is true, let God's will be done. He also refers to himself as the faithful and to the true witness. He says, uh, Jesus is telling them, what I'm about to share with you, church at Laodicea, it's true, and you can trust it because I'm faithful. You can put your faith in me and trust in me. Whatever I share, good or bad, you know there's not gonna be an argument, because when Jesus says something, it's true. And then he says he's the beginning of God's creation. Now this can be a little misleading in the English. When you read the beginning of God's creation, there are some cults out there who are gonna try to tell you that this means that Jesus is the first created being. Your Mormon church will teach you things like that, that Jesus was just a created man and he became a God. Uh, And uh, and they'll point to verses like this and, and some others that taken out of context and misunderstood could imply that Jesus is part of creation, but he's not. Instead of saying that Jesus is the first created being, He is the beginning of creation. He's the author of creation. Remember in John 1, we've been studying in John on Sunday nights, that it says that in the beginning was the word. When was in the beginning? What does that sound like? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, when no matter was here, when there was nothing, there was no physical universe in that beginning before anything existed, the Word existed. We know in verse 14 from that same chapter, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's Jesus. That same Jesus was in the beginning with God. He's eternal. He was the Word, uh, the Word was with God, so He's separate from the Father, but the Word was God. He is, he is fully deity. But then it goes on to say, all things were made through Him. That's what he means by Jesus is the beginning of creation. And so Jesus, when he addresses Laodicea this way, I'm the amen, what I choose to be done will be done. He also says, I'm the faithful and true witness, so whatever I say, even if the world disagrees with Jesus, Jesus is still right. And he says, I am the beginning of creation. He's reminding them, you're here because of me. I am your creator, and when you create something, that creation has a responsibility to please its creator. And so that's what Jesus is reminding Laodicea. You're not isolated from me. You're not separate from me. You need me. We're going to look, number two, at lukewarm Laodicea. This is what we remember Laodicea for. If you remember nothing else about the seven churches, we always remember this one for some reason because we like the phrase, he he will spew them out of their mouth. Like, that just sticks. We remember that. Uh, He says that they're going to be a lukewarm church, and he begins by saying in verse 15, he says, I know your works. Jesus is reminding them, you think you're just going about your activities throughout the day and throughout the week, but I, as your God, see everything you do. I even know your heart intent and your motive behind what you do. I know your works. Your works, our works are what give evidence to our faith. Even if it's faith in something that's bad or something that's sinful, we've placed our belief in a lie, and therefore we live in sin. That's what Satan does. It's where sin comes from. Every, at the root of every sin is a false belief that we have chosen to believe. And same thing when we have faith in God. When there's a faith in God, there are works that will follow. And so our works give evidence to our belief. Or as Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So our works give evidence to our belief. If we have powerful works in the name of the Lord, it's because we have a powerful faith in God. If we have um, a weak or non-existent faith, or works, we have non-existent faith. If we have lukewarm, tepid works, we have a lukewarm and tepid faith. As James says, I will show you my faith by what? By my works. So our works We can lie to ourselves, but our works won't lie. Our works give testimony to what's truly in our heart and what we believe. He says, your works reveal something about you. He says that you're neither cold nor hot. Now, this is interesting because Jesus is taking an illustration from their own water supply. Now, the, the Laodicean water supply came in through an underground aqueduct, and by the time it got into Laodicea, it was... Lukewarm. It was not only lukewarm, it was brackish, it was kind of dirty, and even foul at times. And so, this is the one part of Laodicea that the Laodiceans were not proud of. Oh, look at our banking, look at our medical achievements, look at how safe and um, impregnable our city is. We're a great city. (laughs) But have you heard about Laodicea's water? And so, Jesus is saying, You're just, as a church, you're just like the very thing that you're ashamed of. You hate your water. This is how I feel about you. Would that you were hot or cold. Oh, now he's getting, now now God's getting personal. He says hot or cold, you see because of the, remember he's part of a triad of of cities. You had Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. Hierapolis uh, was a city that had hot springs, rejuvenating hot springs, and people would go there to be refreshed and even believed to have some medicinal value to that. And other people would go to Colossae where they had these cold, refreshing streams. It was a place where you could be refreshed and, and and comforted. It was clean, pure water, but not Laodicea. Their water was their shame. And Jesus says, you're lukewarm. You're like your water supply. Would that you were like Hierapolis or Colossae, but you're... You're like your city water that's disgusting and it's gross. You see, we want things to be hot or cold, polarized, because then it's useful. If you go to China and you go out to eat with your, your Chinese friend, don't order a McTall glass of ice water. They don't want it, typically. What do, we, what do we drink, Mei Mei? We drink kai shui, okay? We drink hot water, boiling water. Okay, that's what they like. And it's, and it's got, they believe it aids in digestion. I think there's some truth in that. Uh, but in America, what do we drink? We drink ice water, right? Because it's cool and refreshing. There's benefits on both sides. You have your hot tea, you have your cold Dr. Pepper, and they're both great. What you don't do is nobody says, you know what I could go for right about now? A tall glass of questionable lukewarm water. How about that? You know, none of us do that because it has no value to us. I just got back from a chiropractor visit this week because I had some pain in my back. I wiped out on the driveway, did some, you know... And you know what he, you know, he told me? He talked about cold compresses. He talked about hot compresses and things like that. You know what he didn't tell me to do? You know, get yourself a lukewarm rag, just a room temperature rag and put that on your back and you'll be right as rain. It doesn't work, does it? It's no good, it's valueless. And this is what Jesus is telling Colossae. If you were hot, there's value. If there's cold, there's value, but you're lukewarm. Now, hot understood here is best understood as someone who's on fire for God. They're a Christian, and they know why they're here. They're excited to be a Christian. They can't wait to be a part of what God is doing because when you really understand what the Christian life is like, there's no other way to live. It's empowering, it's exciting to see God doing eternal things through you. That's hot. Cold is best understood as somebody who's an unbeliever. They're absolutely disinterested in Christ. Okay? And even that is preferable simply to just lukewarm because at least at that point, they can be invigorated. They know that they're living in sin. They know that they're far away from God. They know they need to repent. What about a lukewarm Christian? A lukewarm Christian is neither hot nor cold. They're wearing the Ashland jersey, but they're just kind of fumbling around. On the court, you know, basketball hits him in the head. Oh, what are we here for? Okay, well, you know, and they're they're not really thinking. They're not really playing. As a coach, you want people hot or cold, right? You want them either on the team, committed to the team. You want hungry players, people who are going to go after that ball. People are going to take that shot. People are going to throw their body away for the sake of their team. You want those hot players. Or you can be cold. Choose not to be on the team at all. You know, go run the concession stand. You know, eat some popcorn, pay your fee, and get in and watch the game. Be hot or cold. Here's what a coach doesn't want, right? sure Coach Conley would agree here. You, want, you don't want lukewarm players, do you, brother? He's still trying to recruit me to his football team back there this morning. Uh, he don't want lukewarm players. He doesn't want people to wear the jersey to take up space in the pew but do nothing. He doesn't want people there who said, I want the title, I want the tag, I want the name tag, I want the benefits that go with it, I want the football scholarship. But I'm really not that interested in playing the game. I just wanna show up and sit on the players bench. Can I do that? That's a lukewarm player, but God says that Laodicea was that way as a church. Is it possible to have people who wanna wear the Christian name tag, who wanna come to church, they want the benefit, they want the Christian retirement plan, but they don't want to invest into the church. That's what God calls lukewarm. That we want to be seen as a Christian, we want the retirement plan, but we don't want to be hot for God. We don't want to be working for him. God says, that's Laodicea. How does God feel about that kind of Christian? Spew it out of his mouth. That's gross. You know, if you've ever taken a glass glass and it was questionable anyway, and you go to drink it, and it in this glass glass it smells like fish, and you're like, what is that? You're like, Waiter, seriously need to replace this glass. I don't know where it's been, but like it's foul. It's gross. You spit the water back into the cup. You're like, whatever was in there, I don't want it in my body. You know, God says, that's how I feel about the lukewarm Christian. I don't want it in my body. Don't, don't, don't just take up space in a church. Don't just wear the name tag. Get serious. If, if we're lukewarm, it's because we don't truly understand the greatness of God. We truly don't understand the joy there is in growing close to him, being like him, living like him. We haven't discovered that. See, Christianity is too great a message. It's either worth our passionate, radical devotion, or if it's not true at all, it should be fought and opposed because it promises too great a thing. But there's no room for lukewarmness like here in Laodicea. So let's, number three, let's look at the lie of Laodicea. They're gonna tell themselves the worst kind of lie because they're lying to themselves. They're living in self-deception. They see themselves as one way, but it's not gonna be true. So we have Laodicea, and Jesus calls them lukewarm. What led to their lukewarmness? I'll tell you what led to their lukewarmness. It's the same thing that leads to our own being lukewarm. And it's not gonna be what you think. The thing that leads believers often to be lukewarm for God is comfort. It's ease. It's prosperity. Now, wait a minute. Aren't these the very things that are my prayer request each week? God, give me a raise. You know, Lord, help me win the lottery. I mean, we're just praying for just kind of some great windfall of cash so that I might be earthly successful. It's the thing that we often pray for, and yet it's the most dangerous thing in a Christian's life. I'm not saying go out there and be poor and give everything away. I'm just saying that when God has granted us wealth, we've got to be careful how we use it that we don't begin to trust in the uncertainty of riches. Jesus tells them in verse 17, he says, you say, in other words, this is what you believe to be true about yourself. You say, I am rich. I have prospered. What does that lead them to believing? I need nothing. Now, is that true? Maybe earthly speaking, that's true. They don't need anything. Now, the state of a Christian not needing anything leads to complacency generally because I can provide for myself. I don't have to get on my knees to God and beg him every day to give me lunch. <clears throat> I don't have to go to God every day and, and beg him for a place to, to lay down my head every night. We, we've got all these things. And it, leads us, it can lead us to a place like the Laodiceans where we have so much abundance, we just feel like, I'm pretty satisfied, I'm pretty happy, I'm complacent. It reminds me of Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 12 called the rich fool. You remember this guy. He says, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. He had a lot going for him. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. He says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And I will, on there, I will store all my grains and goods. What he's saying is, I've got a lot. In fact, I have so much. I, need, I have more than I need every day. Uh, I've already filled up my cabinets and my curio shelves. I've filled up my closets. I've filled up the hall closet. I've stuffed my garage so full I can't even park my cars there anymore. I'm going to go get a storage unit. That's what this guy is saying. I have so much. And he says to his soul, and here's what having so much tends to do to the heart. He says, soul... You have ample goods laid up for many years. Can that do that? When we have everything that we need, can it lead us to a little bit of a deception that this earth is our home and I'm gonna be here nearly to forever to enjoy it? It can do that, can it? I have many goods, therefore I'm gonna have many years to enjoy them. And then he says, relax. Eat and drink and be merry, but what does God say to him? You fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So this is the one who lays up for himself treasure uh, and is not rich to himself toward God. This, by the way, is the only man in the Bible God personally calls a fool. It's the person who thinks that because of he's worked at his hands and he's been blessed by God that somehow that was all him and he doesn't really need God. He's just gonna take this stuff that he's earned, he's gonna keep it to himself and he's just gonna live for earthly things and God says, fool, you know you're not gonna keep that, right? You have laid up all this treasure right here and you're gonna lose everything. Reminds me of what Jesus was uh, warning us uh, later when he he talked about uh, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven to store away. He says, you're worrying about your 401K and your retirement here on earth, but what about your eternal reward, your eternal retirement? What are you laying up there? And so this man, he's gotten boastful and proud. He says, you know, but Proverbs 27.1 says, don't boast of tomorrow, you don't know what a day will bring. But this man feels like he can boast of tomorrow because he has so much stuff right now. And that's the danger of riches. I'm not, by the way, preaching against riches. If you have a lot of money, praise God. Uh, I wanna talk to you. Let's be friends. (laughs) It's not wrong to have riches hear me say this I'm not condemning riches and I'm not condemning the rich what I'm saying is we gotta be careful about riches now when I say the word rich who comes to your mind okay you're thinking of somebody right now rich somebody popped into your head I promise you it wasn't you you see I have friends you know some of which who make you know I have a friend who makes $500,000 a year he doesn't think he's rich okay he made he makes a ton of money he does just fine, constantly building and tearing down and doing, doing all kinds of great things. Doesn't think he's rich? <clears throat> That's part of the deceitfulness of riches. We never think we're rich. We always think ourselves as poor because we're comparing ourselves to somebody who's richer than I am. And so whatever riches God has already given me is never enough. You want to know poor? Uh, try going to some of the villages we visited in China in Yunnan, in one of the more rural provinces of China. There's, we, we would visit with people on hard-packed dirt floors. They just have concrete walls. I mean, just concrete block, not painted or anything. It's just block. And they would eat just whatever they could raise because they didn't have enough money to buy food that was raised by other people. And so they ate pumpkins and rice, and they were like this tall. You know that Chinese people aren't actually short people, right? that those who were short back then it was because of malnutrition because they grew up not being rich they grew up under the oppression of World War II so that's poor you know they're still you know their pickup truck is a wildebeest in a cart as they're taking things to town friends that's poor they don't have enough to get by they've never been to a doctor they've never been to a dentist what is rich then rich is when you have everything that you need that's a baseline for rich you have everything that you need. I mean, are there any of you here who are praying, dear God, give me breakfast because I'm not sure where the food's gonna come from? Are any of you stressing that when you go home, you're not gonna have anything to eat? Now, the question that we're asking is, well, do you want Italian or do you want Mexican tonight? We could go Asian. We can go in Huntington and have some Asian over there, a taste of Asian. It's great, you know. We're just trying to figure out what kind of food am I in the mood for? We don't even know what a staple food diet's like where you have rice for every single meal. What do we having for breakfast this morning? Well, it's rice and something. What's for lunch? Rice and something. What's for dinner? You want to guess? Anybody? Rice and something else on top of that. But it's, it's a staple food. It's because that's what we can grow. It's what we have, and we have it every single meal. And as Americans, we'd get sick of that. <clears throat> you know, because we're wealthy. That's the spirit and the mind of a wealthy person. You say, well, I only make like, you know, 60000 a year. Friends, you still have everything that you need. How do I know? Because you guys wear different clothes every day of the week. You have closets full of clothes. You have Most of our houses, we have more than one car. Most of us, we, we have a house, or we own a house, or we at least live in a nice place. We have enough money that we never are stressing about where the food's gonna come from. It's just a matter of, well, I'll buy generic versus name brand. That's still wealthy. We know where all this is coming from. We got plenty of food. We got plenty of clothes. We... That is a baseline for wealth and God says whenever you have everything that you need and there's not something every day nagging you to pray to God for it, you are a wealthy person and there's a danger when we have everything that we have, we got to be careful that we don't become self-reliant and think that I don't need God and that's where the church at Laodicea was. They had everything that they needed and they felt like they didn't really need God or anything else and it affected how they lived. They feel rich. They feel prosperous like they need nothing. But what does Jesus say about them? Not realizing, he says, that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. You know what's interesting here? Do you remember the the little context that I gave you about uh, Laodicea at the beginning of the message here? Jesus just addressed every one of the issues that they felt strong in. Did you notice that? Let's back up and look real quick. Jesus says, you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Wretched is a term that you would use of a city that's been ransacked and destroyed by an opposing nation. Their their city is wretched. They're pitiable. You see what used to be this grand, thriving city with streets and vendors, and now it's just rubble, and it's a smoking ruin, and you look, and you see these people, and you feel bad for them. Ah, what a wretched and pitiable condition they're in. How did, how did Laodicea feel about their city? We're powerful, we're strong. We're on this grand acropolis where nobody can touch us. Jesus says, you're, you don't realize it, but spiritually speaking, you're, you're ransacked. He says to them, they, uh, they also were very proud of their great wealth, remember? And they excelled in banking. We're a wealthy, prosperous people, but see them. He said, you are poor. And he doesn't just mean, wow, I don't have enough money for Netflix this month. He means so poor like Job scraping himself in the street poor. I don't know where my next meal is coming from, poor. God says, you see yourself as rich, but spiritually speaking, I see through this facade and I see that you're actually poor. The Laodiceans were very proud of their medical advances in Isav. Remember that people would come from all over the world to see more clearly because of Laodicea and their great advances, but what does Jesus call them? You're blind. You think you help people see, but you yourselves Are blind and when the blind lead the blind, Jesus says, they they both fall in the ditch. Though the Laodiceans were renowned in the world for their black wool. They were they were proud of their carpets and their fancy clothing. They saw themselves as this, this beautiful, you know, refined kind of stylish people. What did Jesus say about them? You're naked. You're wearing the king's clothes. You think that the clothes on the outside are what's really important and make you look refined and dignified, but you're wearing the king's clothes. You remember that story as a kid, right? Your teachers read to you that little, I don't know what you'd call it, a little fairy tale parable something. You get this uh, king who is extremely, extremely proud and arrogant, and you have some clever tailor come into town, and what does he promise the king? Oh, I can make you a beautiful set of clothes. Here's what it's going to, it's, it's going to be so great that if you're not noble, you won't even be able to see it. Well, the king, he makes makes the king the fake clothes, but uh, the king was too proud to admit that he couldn't see the clothing, and so he decided to wear, remember, the clothing, and he goes out in the town, and the rest of the townspeople are also so proud, they don't want to admit that they see their king naked riding through the streets of town. But who sees through it all? It's a little kid. No guile in him. It's just like, hey, mom, why is the king naked? Shh, (laughs) you know? Why is the king naked? And this is how Laodicea was. They felt like, wow, we're really, yeah, we're pretty nice dressers. We're doing all right here. Jesus says, I see through this facade. You think you look good because you're wearing nice clothes, but I see straight through to your heart, and you have a naked heart. There's nothing noble about how you're living. He says this about Laodicea. You see, they were living in self-deception. That's the lie of Laodicea. They felt wealthy. They felt felt dignified. They felt powerful. And Jesus saw right through all of this earthly facade. He saw through their self-deception. How can we get over self-deception? And by the way, all of us have, to a degree, a little bit of self-deception in us. We like to think of ourselves as being better than we really are. The heart, the Bible says, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and no one who can know it? Who can truly understand it? The only way we can see what we really look like is with a mirror, right? Many of you guys used a mirror this morning. I'm looking around. You didn't, you didn't pop out of bed looking like that. And so you used a mirror. Now, I don't know what my face looks like, which is probably a good thing. But I go to a mirror, and it'll show me exactly what my face, I don't know what my back looks like. You know, I, I can only see a very limited part of my body. And so I, be, I can deceive myself that I look better than I really do. I need a mirror to tell me what I really look like, or I'm deceived, I don't know. The Bible says that the Bible is a mirror to our soul. Most of us, we can't see our soul, right? At least, if you can, let me know how. We can't see our soul, but God can show us what our soul is like as we look into the uh, into the Bible. The Bible's a mirror. In James chapter 1, verses 23 to 25, it says, A man looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself, and he goes away, and at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, that's what the Bible describes itself as. People outside of the church, they think the Bible limits your freedom. They limit your, what, your enjoyment of life. It's the exact opposite. It's, it's guardrails for life so that you can creep all the way to the edge of the Grand Canyon and look over and enjoy it. This is the law of liberty. It frees you to do things and to enjoy life God's way. He says, but if you look into the law of liberty and persevere, you continue in it, not being a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. The idea is that we should be constantly comparing ourselves to the Word of God so that we can see what we look like. And let me say something definitively. If you do not regularly, even daily, read the Word of God so as to compare what you read to your life, you're living in self-deception. If you do not regularly read the Word of God, even even daily at times, you and I both, we're living in self-deception. We have forgotten what kind of person we are. And we think of ourselves more highly than we do. We, we live self-deceived because nobody likes to think of themselves as bad. I mean, even in Judges, the darkest period of Israel's history, what did it say? And every man did that which is right in his own eyes. Even when you're living in sin, you feel like you're doing right. That's the deception of sin. Unless we look at the word of God and it shows us, whoa, <laughs> What I thought was right is actually sin. And so if we're not regularly, consistently, daily in the word of God, we're walking around in self-deception. We have a different view of ourselves than we really are. Something interesting about that same passage, do you know that when it says, don't be like a man who looks in the mirror, he doesn't mean don't be like a person who looks in the mirror. He literally means don't be like a male who looks in the mirror. Ladies, does your husband use the mirror differently than you do? I assure you he does. At least in my home it's it's, it's very true. You come into our bathroom. Uh, my wife shows up in the bathroom and she's got like these like fold out tackle box kits and things. I mean she's she's getting ready for business. That's how she does. She's got tools I've never even heard of. It looks like you know doctor's tools and scalpels and things and I'm just wow what is this thing? It's even got batteries and what do you what do you even use all this for? And she comes home with this these different solutions and serums and I'm thinking like what am I missing out on here? I mean, all I do, I use bar soap on my face. That's how basic a guy I am. A man looks in the mirror, and what do we do? We go to the mirror, and we have one purpose in mind. Am I street legal? Yeah. <laughs> Will I get arrested? <laughs> you know what I mean? When I look in the mirror. When a woman looks in the mirror, she's got a very different intent, doesn't she? She's, she's going there to, fun, to do business. She knows there's something wrong. Okay, there's something that's gonna have to be corrected. So I'm gonna brush it, I'm gonna pluck it, I'm gonna pull it, I'm gonna squeeze it, I'm gonna paint it, I'm gonna cover it, I'm gonna do something about it. So a woman approaches a mirror very differently and don't say, oh, you're sexist. The Bible said this. (laughs) God recognizes that men and women are different not just externally but also internally and women have a greater, it seems, appreciation for beauty than many of us males. I know because I'm looking at you. I'm one of them, too. So he says, don't be like a man who just goes to the mirror, not expecting to find too much wrong, and he goes, yeah, I think it's all right. Yeah, we're good. And then you go to the, get in the car, and your wife's like, oh, hello, you're not going out like that. Instead, he says, be like a woman who, when she goes to the mirror, she knows there's something that needs corrected, and she's going to stay there until it gets fixed. God says, we approach the Word of God that way. When we open up the Bible, we don't go, I bet you I'm pretty okay, <laughs> after all. Eh, that's what I thought, I'm all right. And we move on, and we forget what kind of person we are. God says, be like a woman. Go there going, I know there's things off about me in my life. No matter how good I feel, God, show it to me. Ah, there it is. God, what do I do? And then we act on it. God says, that's how we live. That's how we avoid self-deception. We stay in the word of God like that. We expect to find things that God needs to change, and we work on it. So number four, the lesson for Laodicea is this. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you actually might be rich. White garments that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness, not be seen to salve, to anoint your eyes so that you might see. Remember that these people were bankers and they're investors, but what does God say to them? Quit investing so much in your earthly kingdom here. Invest in me. Buy gold from me, God says, is invest in things that will outlast your life and do so cheerfully. You know, most of us, we, we invest in a retirement, right? You have a 401k, you have something, you're putting money away. It's an inconvenience, but you're cheerful about it, aren't you? You're happy to do it. Why? Because you know there's gonna come a day you may not be able to work. You know, you're gonna be 80, 90 years old and you're gonna be so glad that you had set money aside in your youth that gathered interest. You were happy to put it away because you know it's gonna be useful later to you. God is saying, buy gold from me, invest in me. Put money where it matters. You know, we, we plan for retirement. When you think about it, retirement for many of us is only gonna be anywhere from five to 15 years. And we plan for that period fastidiously, our whole life building up for that moment. But what about eternity? Billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of years and we've barely scratched the surface of eternity. And, but, but, but we don't invest in that. We don't lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And God says to these Laodiceans, why are you doing that? He, he warns in Matthew six, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Don't hide it away for a later use here simply. Not saying there's anything wrong with investing and you should. But he's like, don't invest just in your brief earthly retirement, invest in eternity. You know, give to God. Give to missions. And I'm not telling you a percentage. I'm not putting you under a law or anything like that. I'm telling you just cheerfully from the bottom of your heart, don't give what you have to, give what you can. Because it's an investment, you're like, this is important to me. I'm going to invest into this. You know, but I think one of the reasons we struggle with that is is, is sometimes we have kind of a hamster perspective of God. I had a hamster in second grade and every time I would, I'd play with that hamster every day. I love that hamster. I think he knew it. Um, Best a hamster can. And I would feed him every day, every morning, and I'd put seed into that little container. But you know what he would do? He would, every day, even though I feed him daily, he would hoard it away in his pouches and he would go and he'd create his own little hoard so he doesn't have to trust anybody but himself. Now I don't blame the hamster Because that's his instinct He has no capacity for faith But you and I Don't have to live a hamster's life We can give to God Trusting that God Is going to take care of us And we don't have to Just keep hoarding it away Saying well I'm going to do everything I can So that I never get in a situation Where I might actually Have to trust God And yet that's the very thing That God wants us to do Is to trust him Without faith Hebrews says It is impossible to please God the very thing God says we must do to please him, we say, God, I won't do it because it's not comfortable. I want to trust myself. Well, Jesus tells him, or tells them, he says, uh, those whom I love, I reprove, reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent, repent. God, if he truly loves us, is a loving father. He's not just going to let us do what we want. A lazy, selfish, earthly parent, they're going to avoid disciplining their children because, frankly, you're like me. You get tired. You get home. You've had a long day. You see your kid. They're acting up. They're doing wrong things. You probably should interject and and even discipline them at times, but you don't want to because you're tired. And you just don't want to hear it. Or you got a teenager at home and you know if you you go up against something that they're doing that's wrong, you're going to hear it and you're going to get into an argument and you just don't have the energy for it. God isn't that way. God, if he sees that there's things that we're doing wrong in our life, cares too much about our character to just let us go on. And so he he will slow us down. He'll reprove us. And it says in Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord uses discipline. He chastises the ones that he loves. It means to scourge with a whip. You see, sometimes when you love somebody, you care more about their character than their comfort. And sometimes you have to bring in difficult, even painful things into their life so that they don't turn out uh, poorly, and they ruin their life. Well, Jesus then says to them, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come and eat with him and he with me. Now, when do we usually hear this used? How do we normally understand this verse? In evangelism, right? Jesus is a gentleman. He stands at the door and he knocks to get into your heart. Whatever you choose to believe about that, you can't use this verse for that. Did you know that? This has nothing to do with Jesus knocking on the door of your heart to come in and be your savior. How do we know? A little bit of hermeneutics here, right? Bible interpretation. Context controls the meaning. So you can't just take a verse out of context and read it by itself and say, I think this is what it means. It doesn't matter what you think it means. What does God say it means? And so, what's the context of this passage here? Who is God talking to? Hint, Laodicea. And they are a church They're a Christian already, aren't they? Because that's what a church is. They're an ecclesia, a called out one. They're already called out. They're part of God's. So Jesus, help me understand this. Jesus then is knocking on the door of something that already has believers in it, and he wants in. Are we talking about salvation? No, we're not. They're already Christians. Then what what are we talking about then that Jesus is standing at the door and knocking? On what is Jesus knocking to get in? The church. The church. Is it possible for a church to meet together and devolve into something that's just a religious institution? We do religious activities, we do religious things, and we hold fast to traditions, and we do things that way because we've always done it that way, and we just go on and on and on in this cycle of religious activity, but Jesus is no longer a part of what we're doing, and we didn't even realize it. We're like Jesus' parents who are at the temple doing religious activity. We take off. We don't even realize we left Jesus behind. That's a scary place to be. Jesus wants to be back in part of the church, but instead we've left him out in the street. We've left Jesus out in the cold, you know, like like Scrooge when he's visiting with the ghost of Christmas past and he's looking into the windows standing out in the cold and he wants to be a part of what they're doing. He wants to interact, but he's not allowed to. God is saying that sometimes with churches, even like the one in Laodicea, is that churches can become just so professional and we just get all the cogs that move at activities and the gears they grind, but Jesus is not in it. And when we lack Jesus' presence, what do we also lack? We lack his power. How do we know if we're a lukewarm church where we have left Jesus behind and we're just doing religious activity, but Jesus is not present, active, and alive in the church? There's some symptoms of that. Like Laodicea, we become lukewarm. Jesus' power is not there. People don't get saved, people are not getting discipled, people are not getting baptized, lives are not being changed. These are all symptoms of a church that is just cogs, they're just wheels moving, but Jesus' power is gone. We don't want to be that church. We we don't want to be Laodicea where there's no power, where Jesus is on the outside knocking to get in. So Jesus tells them, be zealous and repent. Change your mind about how you think. He says, if you do, we will come. He says, if anyone hears my voice, you've got an ear to hear. You're listening for God. You want to know what God says. He says, if you, anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That eating in a Middle Eastern culture implies agreement. We're in a good place together. We're working together. We want the same things. When the church agrees with Jesus, and we want the same things, we don't just want whatever we always had, or we don't just want our way, when we agree with Jesus, Jesus comes in, he knocks, we open, we sit and we eat, we agree with Jesus and say, you know what, you're right, church should look like what the Bible says it should look like, church should look like what Jesus says it should look like. And when that happens, the presence of Jesus is there. And when the presence of Jesus is here, Jesus' power follows. We've got to be a church that is willing to depart from whatever I personally want, whatever my desires are, and just to pursue what Jesus said in the seven churches, just to pursue what what pleases him. The one who conquers, he says, he'll sit on my throne as I've also conquered and sat down on my father's throne. What he's saying is that God provides reward for faith that's exercised today. That we will actually rule with him in his millennial kingdom. It's in the Bible. We don't have time for it today, but it's there. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's saying not everybody's going to care about this message. Some people here are going to be like, Yeah, well, looks like you're fixing to go over, brother. We still have the Lord's Supper today. Oh, brother, not another one of those days. You know, and it's like, we just don't have an ear to hear. We're not hungry, we're lukewarm. You know, we, we get excited if the Bengals go into overtime. Praise God, you know, and we're, we're pumped and we're thinking all about it. We're, we're praising God, and we can sit there for three and a half hours watching a football game excited. Why? Because our interest is there. But we'll balk if church goes 10 minutes over because why? My interest has limitations. We don't want to be a lukewarm church. We want to be a church that's hot and on fire for God. He who has an ear, let him hear. Let's be listening for God's voice. Let's be passionate about God. Let's be hungry for him. Let's be hungry for his word. And let's go out there and let's make a difference in this world. But we can't do it with just one or two people. As a church, we've got to collectively agree. Jesus is on the outside, but we need, he's knocking. Let's let him in. Let, let's let his presence within our church and collectively as a body, let's disciple ourselves, let's get serious about God, let's get hungry, and let's see what God can do through us. Will you do that with me? Let's pray, and then, at, and then we'll enjoy the Lord's Supper together. Father, we just thank you today that you have given us some time to study and learn from some of these churches, some of the things they did well, some of the things that they did poorly. God, may we be wise people. As your, as your book says, he, you know, the, the wise, if you reprove or rebuke a wise man, he will be yet wiser. When we hear the reproof of God, Father, I pray that you will help us to be wise. Help us to follow. That as you're knocking on the door, God, help us to open up that we might have your presence and your power here in this church. Glorify yourself, not us, but yourself in all that we do. We ask in
0: Christ. name. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, simply click on the link in the show notes and we'll be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you've enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. As promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at Unity Baptist Ashland. Remember, If you know Jesus as your personal Savior, you are never alone. He is always near, and you are deeply loved. Until next time, have a great day.